0: Would you join me in bowing your heads as we pray? God, our Father, uh, we do come before you, and we long for your return. We long for your your presence to be full and known everywhere in this world. And we pray, Lord, as we look back uh, to your first coming, uh, that uh, we would prepare our hearts and we would live lives that honor what you have already done as we look forward uh, to what you will one day do. We ask these things now, asking you to open our hearts to hear your word. We pray them in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, I want to welcome you to Christmas at Southwinds as we are preparing our hearts to celebrate the birth of God's Son as we do every year. And you can open your Bibles now to the Gospel of John chapter 1. And as you're doing that, I want to show you something. this piece of paper right here is a permit uh, for our building project that we got this Wednesday. And uh, we got it Wednesday, and I drove to Fresno on Thursday and signed my name about a thousand times. I told my family I'm gonna sign my name a thousand times to borrow several million dollars, and, and uh, the, the financing is, is set up, and we are breaking ground today. As you've been hearing, at four o'clock you are invited Uh, There's more about that in your program. I want to let you know, we anticipate that the actual construction work won't begin for about two weeks. We're looking forward to it happening on December 18th, and so just keep your eyes open. It'll be there quicker than you you know. Well, this month, as we gather to worship for a few weeks, we're going to be looking at one of the most crucial passages in the entire Bible— the opening verses of John's gospel. And scholars call these verses the prologue. And in these verses, John is telling us what Christmas means. What Christmas means. We're most familiar. We spend most of our time at Christmas in the gospel accounts given in Matthew and Luke. And they tell us, focus on what happened mostly at at Christmas. They, they focus mostly on what happened from the ground up in the lives of ordinary people, like Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and, and the wise men, e- even crazy King Herod. We, we see the real people who were there at that first Christmas, the real people that fill our nativity scenes. But when you get to John, you find another Christmas story. And John's story is often overlooked at Christmas because it doesn't really have any of those Christmas characters. John only talks about the one Christmas character that actually in the end matters and that's Jesus. What John does is he gives us the story of Christmas from the perspective of eternity and today we're going to begin a journey what is really into the heart of Christmas. A journey into the history dividing, paradigm shattering, life transforming truth that we call the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine that teaches us that at Christmas, God became a man. Christmas tells us that God is now with us, that Jesus, this little baby, is the infinite infant. And it is important that we grasp this for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that, honestly, many Christ followers are not really that clear on what the Bible teaches about the incarnation. And it is a truth so profound and it seems so complicated that honestly I, I think a lot of us kind of just tend to float past it and we don't we don't stop and we don't dig in and we don't try to wrestle with the mentally with all that is involved so that we can understand as much as we are able what is ultimately incomprehensible. I mean what it means for the eternal God to send his eternal son. To become a man, what it means for Jesus is to be fully God and fully human, and so we 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 need to dig in on this. And the second reason we need to dig in is there actually are a lot of competing ideas out there about who Jesus is. Now, um, almost everyone accepts today that Jesus is a historical figure. Very few people actually try to argue that he didn't exist. And almost everyone esteems Jesus as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, people ever to live on planet Earth. But most people don't know him for who he truly is. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but it happens at my house from time to time. The doorbell rings, and I, I go to the door, and I open the door and find there two nicely dressed people, sometimes men, sometimes women, and they're smiling at me, and I know immediately that they are Jehovah's Witnesses. And usually, they'll ask me if I want some literature, and usually, I will politely tell them that I wouldn't be interested. And then they'll usually ask me why, and then I will tell them, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And then it gets interesting. (laughs) They will usually say, well, we are too. And I will politely say, well, no, you really aren't. And then the fun begins. And by the way, just a side note, if that bothers you that I say that, um, there's some things you need to think about. If it bothers you that I would tell someone they don't know truth, then you may not understand truth because what I said is true. And I think I'm going to explain this as we go through this, this message. So when I say something like that, uh, like I said, the fun begins, and we'll talk for a while, maybe a half hour, as long as either side has patience or it has time. And we may talk about theology, and we talk about Christology, and principles of Bible translation, and, and church history sometimes, and even some, you know, some examples, uh, some aspects of Greek grammar, along with a few other things. And they never persuade me, and so far I've never persuaded them But I always pray and I always hope that I plant a few seeds of doubt. But our conversation, what we're talking about in those moments, is always about the central question of Christmas. And that question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You see, there are lots and lots of different answers out there. If you've studied world religions, you'll know that, that almost all world religions speak very highly of Jesus Uh, For example, Islam teaches that Jesus was a great prophet and we should revere him, yet they want to say he's inferior to Muhammad. Uh, Hinduism says that Jesus was a wise man, an avatar, you know, maybe an incarnation of God like Krishna. Uh, Buddhism says that Jesus, he wasn't God, but he was an enlightened man like the Buddha, only thinner, much thinner, Um, (laughs) New Age guru Deepak Chopra once said this, I see Christ as a state of consciousness that we can all aspire to. And the Dalai Lama, he said, Jesus was either a fully enlightened being being, or a bodhisattva, which is one who aids others to enlightenment, of a very high spiritual realization. And there are even some churches, what we might call mainline churches today, what we might call liberal Christians, who will say Jesus was a good man, but they're kind of unclear about Uh, his being the God-man. Then there's Jehovah Witnesses that I've referred to. They say Jesus was Jehovah's first created being. He was the one Jehovah used to create all things. They equate him with Michael the archangel. He's a created being that became a man. And then there's Mormonism, which teaches that Jesus was Heavenly Father's firstborn spirit child in heaven, that he was a man who became one of many God's And it's also taught that Jesus was a polygamist, that he was half-brother of Lucifer or Satan, also, you know, uh, fathered by God. And then there's Scientology, which teaches that Jesus is an implant forced upon a Thetan about a million years ago. Now, I would explain that to you, but I've never smoked weed or dropped acid, so (laughs) I kind of don't know what to say. Um, And, and then, because we like to go deep around here at Southwinds, there's Ricky Bobby, <laughs> Talladega Nights. You remember his prayer? Dear tiny baby Jesus in your tiny baby manger crib with your tiny little hands and feet watching your tiny little Einstein baby development videos, use your tiny little superpowers to keep me winning on the racetrack. Amen. And uh, Ricky Bobby's wife is only marginally sharper than Ricky Bobby. She says, you know, I don't think you are supposed to pray to the little baby Jesus because he grew up and he became a man. I think you're supposed to pray to grown-up Jesus. And and Ricky Bobby says, I don't want to pray to that Jesus. I like praying to the little baby Jesus because it makes me feel good just to think about him being a little tiny infant And so when you're praying, you can pray to the grown-up Jesus or the teenage Jesus or the bearded Jesus or whoever you want to, but I like Christmas Jesus. I like a cuddly little baby Jesus. I'm going to pray to him. Now, the movie writers are just trying to be funny, but they actually put their fingers on a real problem. And that problem is we all tend to replace the real Jesus with whatever Jesus we want him to be sometimes. It's a human thing. And maybe we're people who like the little tiny baby Jesus because it makes us feel good, you know, warm in our hearts to think about a little baby in a manger. And we don't really want to think about that little infant growing up and making demands on people and confronting people with their sin. He's just so sweet lying there. Or maybe some of us pray to the bailout Jesus. You know, he's there when we need him, when we're in trouble. Or maybe it's the part-time Jesus. You know, we don't think about him very much. We kind of live our lives, but, you know, from time to time, uh, when we want him, he's, he's there, and we call on him. Or maybe it's the storybook Jesus, and we like some of the stories in the Bible, but we treat them more like myths or legends, like fairy tales. And we like to hear them, but we don't really take them seriously. The point is we all have a tendency to replace the real Jesus, with the Jesus we want. And the teaching of Christmas, what Christmas means is that there was a real Jesus, and he grew up, and coming to know the real Jesus is the most important thing that anyone can ever do. Now, John's prologue confronts us with that real Jesus. John tells us plainly, Jesus is God-made man. Jesus is the infinite infant. And I want to show you just two truths this morning that, that kind of unpack what that means. First of all, write this down in your notes. The infant Jesus, born at Bethlehem, was the infinite God. John says this in his first three verses of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so John's very first words in his gospel, in the beginning was the word, they lead us to immediately think of something we've heard before, and that is the very first words in the entire Bible, Genesis 1.1. What John is doing is he puts Jesus where we would expect God. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the word, John 1.1. I want you to listen to how John describes Jesus. John shows us Jesus' deity in four different ways. First of all, he describes Jesus as eternally existent. In the beginning was the Word. You see, when creation happened, Jesus already was. He didn't have a beginning. When space and time came into being, Jesus already was. When matter and energy pulsed with light and power, Jesus already was. One scholar writes this, the word existed before creation, which makes it clear that the word was not created. The word is not to be included among created beings. Now, this reality is so profound, so beyond us, so ultimately incomprehensible that in the end, we must accept it by faith. I was remembering this week something that happened uh, 16, 17 years ago, when we still lived in a Chicago suburb, just a couple years before we moved to Tracy, we were, we were doing Christian, uh, Christmas devotions at our home, and our third child, Matthew, was probably seven or eight. And as I talked about this fact that Jesus was eternal, that he already, already existed, always existed, Matthew asked the question, Dad, when was God born? And I sensed a teachable moment, and I said, well, Matthew... God did not have a beginning. In fact, son, God possesses a quality that I'm so sure you would really like to think about and learn about today. It's called aseity. God has something called aseity. That means that God isn't dependent on anything outside of his being or nature. God just is. God just exists. God always has. And I was pretty pleased with myself. But Matthew just said, well, yeah, Dad, but when was God born? And I tried again, and I got done. And Matthew again said, well, Dad, w- when was God born? This kept going on. About the fifth time, I think, the, our two older kids were about to lose it. Matthew, quit asking questions, because they just wanted to get devotions over with, you know. <laughs> they didn't understand Osseity any more than he did, and only a little less than I do. And we never really got anywhere because in the end, ultimately, it's beyond our finite minds. Ultimately, this is the truth that we receive by faith. Now, if the word already was in the beginning, then he must either have been with God or he must have been God. And John teaches both. Here's the second thing he says. Jesus was distinctly personal. He says the word was with God. Uh, he was with God in the beginning. And this tells us that the word is a person who has a relationship with God. Now in the creation account of Genesis 1, we read, and God said eight times. And it was by God's word, Moses tells us in Genesis, that, that he brought creation into being. And John is now telling us that this word is a person who was with God. And he drives that home in verse 2 by reiterating, he was with God in the beginning. You see, John is beginning to unfold here. What Christ followers will come to understand as the doctrine of the Trinity. John wants us to understand not only the eternity of the word, but also the personhood of the word. The word is a person. He is the companion of God himself. And this is an idea that warns us against another perennial heresy, which which denies the distinct personhood of the various members of the Trinity. Maybe you've encountered some groups or some people, and then what they tend to do is they collapse the three persons of the Trinity just into one. They don't see them distinctly and separately, but the the doctrine of the Trinity teaches in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it's hard for us to understand that. How can there only be One God with three distinct persons inside that one God. How can that be? But it is verses like this that lead us to believe it. Now, when John speaks of the word, he means God the Son. He means Jesus Christ who eternally lives in relationship with and who eternally does the will of God the Father. And people may may deny that these are distinct persons trying to instead see the Father and the Son as like different modes of this one undifferentiated person. But while one person can be by himself, that one person is never with himself. There is, must be a differentiation. See, John insists that the word is a distinct divine person when he says the word was with God. And that leads us really to where he's driving. The third thing he says is Jesus was fully divine. The word was God. Now, John puts this about as boldly and bluntly and plainly as you can. The Word was God. He's not just a companion to God, but he himself is fully divine. Uh, You probably remember a few years ago this best-selling novel, The Da Vinci Code, came out, and the movie followed that, and lots of people read that book, and it was kind of an interesting read in certain ways. But I have to tell you, the history in that book I mean, it was just nonsense on a stick, and somebody had lit that stick on fire. I mean, it's just ridiculous. There's no truth absolutely whatsoever to any of the assertions that are made about the history that, are, that was there. And one of the things that Dan Brown said in that book as he writes this novel is that Christians never thought Jesus was divine until the 4th century after the Council of Nicaea. But we have here in very clear language that it was written in the 1st century... The word was God. John's going to repeat this claim in verse 18, saying that no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. You're going to find this all throughout the Gospel of John. You're going to get to the end of the Gospel of John and the resurrected Jesus is appearing and he's appearing to Thomas. You remember Thomas was doubting and Jesus shows him his hands and his side and Thomas sees this and he falls down in worship and cries out to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And that, friends, is the Christian confession. It has been for 2,000 years. John is telling us this. He wants us to know it from the very beginning of his Gospel. Jesus Christ, the Word, word is God. He is God. And this was a very important statement through the early centuries of the church as various heretics arose. There was a, a renegade priest, his name was Arius, and he began to teach something that we see today in its similar form in the Jehovah Witnesses teaching. He, he, he maintained this heresy that, that Jesus, though certainly godlike in many ways, was less than god and he said that jesus was a created being however glorious he might have been and close to god he might have have been and, and it was actually arius's heresy that prompted that council of nicaea in 325 a.d now because john 1:1 states christ's deity so plainly this verse is still attacked and it is the place where jehovah witnesses come Today, to try to say that John is teaching us not that Jesus is God, but rather that Jesus is a godlike creature. He may be divine, but he's not a deity. And they base this on the fact that in the final phrase of verse 1 in the Greek text, John places a definite article, the word the, before word, but he doesn't place one before the Greek word for God. They claim that John is really saying, In the Greek text, the word was a God, but not the God. Now, this may be deeper in the weeds than some of you are interested in going, but you have to come because you're here and you're stuck, okay? And I'm going to tell you, I have four responses to that. You can write them down and maybe think about them later. But here's what we need to say to that. First, if you read the entire Gospel of John, it is so utterly clear that John intends for us to identify Jesus as God. And so we can just say believing that Jesus is fully divine does not depend just on this verse. We can also say that what John says elsewhere clarifies his meaning here. Second, if John meant that Jesus was godlike but not God, there is actually a perfectly good Greek word that he would have used, but he did not, in fact, use. The, the word for God is theos, if you want to transliterate it, it's T-H-E-O-S. The word for God-like just adds an I after the E, T-H-E-I-O-S. John could have used that word. He didn't. Third, while the Arian argument and the Jehovah's Witness argument may be persuasive to someone who actually doesn't know New Testament Greek, the fact is Greek grammar does not demand a definite article for both nouns when they are joined this way. It's a complicated grammatical principle, and I know you don't really want to hear any more than this. You can trust me on this one. It's just common for one definite article to serve for both nouns, and so their grammatical argument is simply wrong. And I'll just add this. Nobody but Jehovah's Witnesses asserts this. People who know Greek, who don't believe Jesus is God, know that John thinks Jesus is God, and John is saying that Jesus is God. It just doesn't hold water. And then fourth, there actually is an obvious reason for John's grammatical construction here. His point is both to identify the Word as God, meaning God the Father, but as also distinct from God. And so if he wrote the Word was the God, that would be identifying Jesus with God in a way that they would be indistinguishable. His point is clearly to specify Christ's deity while also distinguishing him from God the Father. Martin Luther, the reformer, about 500 years ago made this statement. He said, This text is a strong and valid attestation of the divinity of Christ. Everything depends on this doctrine. It serves to maintain and support all other doctrines of our Christian faith. Therefore, the devil assailed it very early in the history of Christendom, and he continues to do so in our day. That was 500 years ago. His words are still true today. John is telling us. Jesus is fully God. And then he just adds one more thing, as if we didn't, you know, as if we didn't have enough already. He says, Jesus is the creator of all things. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. You know, as I mentioned earlier, in Genesis 1, we read eight separate times uh, the phrase that God said. It, it was by God's word that he brought creation into being. And this actually is shedding light on Genesis 1, 26. People wonder, why does, it, why does it say then God said, let us make man in our image? Well, God was speaking to the word. And John is clarifying this in verses two and three when he says he was in the beginning and with God and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. Theologians say that the word is God's agent in creation. He's the one who executes creation. He's the one who accomplishes God's will. See, God said, let there be light, and the word made light. And all through the Bible, it is God's word that does God's will. Psalm 33, 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Psalm one hundred seven twenty says, he sent his word and Healed them. And the word who made creation in the New Testament we find also brings God's salvation. Classic New Testament text for this is Colossians 1, 15 to 17, where Paul writes, "...he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created." Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, I could put it this way. Maybe you want to write this down. John is trying to tell us everything that makes God God, the word possesses. He's God. And this is so crucial for us to see because John is writing in such a way that he leaves us no room whatsoever to imagine that at Christmas 2,000 years ago, some religious guru was born or some great teacher or prophet, you know, was laid in a manger. He leaves no room for even the idea that Jesus was divine, you know, kind of a small G God and there's this one big G God and Jesus is sort of his little G underling God. John just rules all of this out. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he affirms the full deity of Jesus Christ, the infant Jesus born at Bethlehem was the infinite God. That's what he's telling us. And that's not all. He also tells us, number two, you can write this in your notes, the infant Jesus was the infinite God made fully man. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this verse is also teaching us something incredible. You see, it may be hard to believe that, that Jesus is God, but if you really think about it, if you really think about it, it is just as hard to believe that Jesus was fully a man, that he was one of us. It's also just as important. Maybe you never thought about this. I'm going to spell it out. You can write it down and chew on it. It's just as important to believe that Jesus was fully man as it is to believe he was fully God. And when I put it real plainly, you cannot be a true Christian unless you believe Jesus was God. You also cannot be a true Christian unless you also believe at the same time that he was fully man. Both ideas are are taught in the Bible. Both our ideas are essential to understanding who Jesus is and therefore to being one of his followers. Let me kind of talk about this. The basic idea all through Scripture is that the only way we can be saved is if God came to save us. Another one of the church fathers by the name of Athanasius once said, And you might want to write this down. It's a great statement. He said, a creature can't save a creature any more than a creature can create a creature. Or you can put it this way. Jesus had to be God to pay the price for sin, but he also had to be human, both. See, how can you pay the price for humanity's sin unless you're part of humanity? 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Jesus had to be God, but to also meet our need, he also has to be human. John uses a wonderful Wonderful phrase in verse 14. He he talks about the word. That's the Greek word logos. And he says the eternal God, the logos became flesh. And then he said this word made his dwelling among us. And literally the Greek word there is saying the word tabernacled. Or you could say maybe God pitched a tent. Someone paraphrased this. God moved into the neighborhood. He became one of us. This word is pointing back to the Old Testament idea of the tabernacle, which was a tent where God had his people build this place for his presence to dwell, where they would worship him. And Jesus, in the same way, came, and he tabernacled among us. And what I want to focus on today and try to force you to think about is it, it's just as hard, really, for us to believe this about Jesus as it is to believe he's divine. In fact, very, very early in the church's history, a heresy sprang up on this area. It was called docetism, spelled D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. It comes from a Greek word, dokeo, which means to appear. And these people who had this idea, the, the, the docetic doctrine, said Jesus is divine, we get that, but he couldn't have been a man because you can't take divinity and humanity and put them together. It just doesn't work. So he just appeared to be a man. And the church quickly identified this as heresy. The church quickly said, if this is true, you can't be saved. And I want to tell you, you may never realize this, but we kind of still struggle with this one today. I think we have difficulty grappling with the reality of Jesus' humanity. Uh, even our Christmas carols sometimes struggle with it. We, we hesitate to attribute to humanity, to Jesus. I mean, everybody loves Away in a Manger, right? It's a great Christmas carol. It's one of my favorites. It has a line in it, Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Why would we say that if he's a real baby? Because we don't want to think of him as a real baby, do we? We, we don't want to think that when Jesus was a baby, he was gassy. <laughs> right? I mean, let me just ask you a question, Um, and this is for all the junior high boys who are here, I know, but do you think Jesus pooped his diapers? And if you don't like that question, if it bothers you for me to even ask that question because you don't even want to think about that question, I just have another one for you. Are you diminishing his true humanity? I mean, if you don't think Jesus ever pooped, you probably don't think he's a real person. Jesus lived in a warm climate, kind of like we do. And so that means he sweated. And I think that also means Jesus had B.O. Have you ever thought about Jesus having (laughs) B.O.? Whatever we think about, Jesus experienced, if he was a real human being, he had to experience all the things that make us human. And if we don't like that, if you say, I don't want to think about that, then maybe you're not fully listening to the testimony of Scripture, Now, why does this matter, Jesus' humanity? I want to tell you three things about it that are all essential, three things that Jesus uh, had to be fully human in order to be for us. And the first one is this. Jesus had to be fully human to be our example. Jesus came to earth to show us what God was like. The Bible says God is love, and and Jesus demonstrates that by coming and by dying for us. So he's a, a window into what God is like. But he's also a mirror that shows us who we are meant to be. I want you to listen really carefully to this. It's so important in this cultural moment in which we are living. Jesus is the ultimate example of a fully human person. And that means, biblically speaking, you cannot understand what it is to be fully human until you know Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22 says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Well, what kind of example? The word that's used here is of a copy book. It's maybe kind of like a sampler where you see everything, you know, all the alphabet laid out. Or maybe for some of you, you, you women who've done cross-stitch samplers, you know what this would be like. But you see the example, you are to copy that and follow after that. And I was just thinking this week how we live in this time where we are every day seeing leaders, elites, people at the top of our societal ladder falling in terrible fashion and how often this is happening. And it's like, where do you look for an example today? Well, Jesus is where you look because Jesus is the only perfect human being who ever lived. He is our example because he was a real person. See, biblically, think about this. Biblically, the essence of being human is actually not to be like a human being, but to be like God. I probably need to say that again, right? Biblically, the essence of being human is actually not to be like a human being, but to be like God. You see, where do you get that? We were told in Scripture that we were created in the image of God. That's what it means to be a human. And I think that also means you are most like yourself when you're most like God. Anybody notice the the big, huge moon? I forget what they're calling it this time that was out last night. Anybody see that? Everybody see the moon? Um, When is the moon most moon? Well, I'm going to answer the question for you. The moon is most moon when it is full of the glory of the sun, Right? See, as a human, always our identity is derivative. We don't make it up ourselves. We are fully human only when we fully reflect what God is like. And friends, hear me, that's when we know who we are. And that's why our culture is so confused right now. People are spending their lives going on quests and going on journeys, trying to find themselves, trying to understand their identity. And our culture says you got to look inside for answers. And I'm just telling you, you're never going to find them. The answer to who you are is in your creator, the one who made you when you become like him. And how do we know who he is? Well, God sent his son into the world to reveal the father. We find out who we are when we live like Jesus, when we become like Jesus. He's our example. Second, Jesus had to be fully human to be our substitute. Not only does Jesus live the life we should have lived, he dies the death we should have died, in dying for us, he accomplishes salvation for us. And in the same way, the Bible talks about this, how Adam Adam was the pioneer of our fallenness. Adam led the human race into sin. Jesus, the second Adam, is the pioneer of our salvation. In the same way that Adam died for his own sins, Jesus comes and having lived the life we should have lived, he dies for our sins. He dies for your sins. He dies for my sins. 1 Corinthians 15 For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus is born and he lives and he goes to the cross and he takes our place there, dying the death we should have died, paying the debt that we owe, and in his resurrection back to life again, he proves that he has paid the price. And he has to be human to do this. That's the point we're making this morning. If God himself had come and died, it wouldn't have been enough unless he becomes one of us. Then, and only then, can he die in your place. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He dies the death we owe so that we have the life that only he deserved. And Jesus has to be one of us to do that. Let me give you the third thing. Jesus had to be fully human to be our friend. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you all get this. We trust people who've been there, right? We trust people who know where we live, who've suffered what we've suffered. You know, for some of us, (laughs) our greatest fear is, you know, you go to your therapist and you pour out your heart and your troubles, and your therapist looks at you and says, you did what? In 20 years of practice, I've never heard of that. You should be on Jerry Springer. You're disgusting. You just need to get out of here. I can't do anything for you. I mean... You don't want to go to someone and open up and have them respond like that. You know, you only talk to, you only open up to someone who's been there, right? That's what Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 is talking about when it says, "'Since the children have flesh and blood.'" he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And some of you are so afraid of death. You don't need to be because God sent his son. The author of Hebrews says, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. I want, to, I want you to think about something that I think sometimes people get mess, messed up about. When we say that he is our friend, we need to keep in mind this reality of who God is. You need to remember before God created everything, before anything else existed, God had a very good thing going on. Sometimes people like to say God created everything You know, people, because he was lonely. No, he was not lonely. He had perfect fellowship within the fellowship of the Trinity. He didn't need us. God is not needy. if you think of God as needy, you're not thinking of him biblically. God was not lonely. God was not needy, but he sent his son anyway. And he came knowing what we would do to him. He came knowing that we would nail him to a cross and if that's true, then it means this, and this blows my mind. So what's amazing about Christmas is not only that God became human, but that God would want to. I mean, when I look at my life, and I get honest, and I hope you do this too, I think there's just nothing in me that would make me lovable to God. I think there's a lot of us out here, and we think about that, and we find ourselves kind of kind of thinking, well, you know, I know the Bible says God loves me, and I guess God's okay with me. And he probably really does love some people, but I think he sort of just tolerates me. There's a lot of people that think that. Let me put it this way. It's Christmas season, and we're going to get together with a lot of people, right? Family, friends, stuff like that. Have you ever had the experience in the Christmas season where you're looking forward to that kind of a get-together? Let's say it's with your family. You can't wait to get home. and you can't wait to see everybody. And then you hear your sister is bringing her annoying college roommate with her. <laughs> or then you hear your weird uncle is going to show up this year. How many of you have a weird uncle? How many of you's weird uncle is here today worshiping with you? No, don't raise your hand on that. You know, and, and so you're really looking to go into this party. You can't wait to get there. But when you hear who's going to be there, it kind of takes something out of it, doesn't it? And, and you know you're going to have to just put up with some people. And I think some of you feel like, well, God invites me to be at his table, but he probably sees me like that weird uncle. I think he just tolerates me. See, here's the point of Christmas. God wants to live with you. God wants to be with you. God wants to be your friend. Jesus did not come to this earth for all the beautiful people. Jesus came for shepherds. Jesus came to outcasts and losers. Jesus came for prostitutes and tax collectors. Jesus came to addicts. Jesus came to people who would never live up to their ideals and always felt disappointed. Jesus came to people who have impure thoughts and have led impure lives. Jesus came to us. He came for you. He came for me. And God loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. And so he declares his love in the strongest language possible. He declares it in person. He comes. In verse 18, remember, John says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only God who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. If you want to know who God is, I'm telling you today, here's the answer. Get to know Jesus. The better you know Jesus, the better you're going to know God because he perfectly reveals God to us and he shows us God as our friend. There's something else interesting here. It says in verse 18 that the son is in closest relationship with the father and in Greek it literally reads, this kind of old language for us today, in the bosom of the father. Now this might seem like a strange question to ask but how many people have access to your bosom? Not many, right? Uh, You you guys got real awkward and uncomfortable there. (laughs) Maybe your spouse. I mean, think about it. It's an intimate place, right? It's an exclusive place. And maybe your spouse can snuggle up to you that way. Maybe your kids, but even when they get very big, that kind of changes, right? Because it's exclusive. This is the place of deepest love. And that's where the father and the son invite us to go. God offers to share that kind of love and to share it with you and with me. You know, as we launch this Christmas season, first Sunday of December, a few weeks before Christmas comes, I suspect that what is true for more than a few of you is what is true for many people every year at Christmas. For many people every year, Christmas is not the most wonderful time of the year because for many people, Christmas kind of just magnifies what's wrong in your life, doesn't it? Christmas just kind of magnifies the hurt and the loss, that thing that you're missing, and you don't feel joy. You you feel grief. You you just feel with greater intensity that thing that hurts, the reality of the divorce, that broken relationship, the presence of some disease or or some illness that's slowly taking away that person you love. Maybe you feel all the weight of, of decisions you've made that you now regret, and you're just living under them right now. Christmas just magnifies all that, right? Maybe right now, even more than usual, you're wondering, does God really care? I'm here to tell you. If you don't hear anything else I've said today, hear this. Does God really care? Christmas answers yes. Yes. God gave an emphatic yes in that manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago in the form of that tiny, vulnerable baby. Now, I'm not saying that Christmas is going to solve all your problems. God's going to come in and rescue you from everything. Christmas does mean that God always will be with you and that God always will love you in all your problems. And in that, you can have hope. In that, you can have strength. I want to leave you uh, with this reminder You can write this down. If you ever wonder if God's heart is big enough for you, then just remember how small God became for you. See, love draws near. Christmas means God is with us. And what's left for us in response to that is to open our hearts and our lives and invite him in. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey today, I want to invite you to do that as we pray. Would you bow your heads? Father, we just want to give you thanks once again for the goodness and the grace uh, that you have poured out on us in your son, Jesus. And Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would just fill us again with a renewed sense of awe and wonder as we grapple with these cosmic realities these eternal truths that you sent your son fully god and fully man lord maybe we've followed you for some time and maybe we've heard these stories and heard these truths again and again i just pray father that that you would even today explode the sense of joy and wonder and worship that we have that our hearts would just cry out glory to god that you would do this and Lord, if, if we're here today and, and this is all new to us, maybe we've never heard it before, I pray that the reality of who you are, that the great and awesome eternal God would love us so much that he would become one of us, I pray that that reality would just hit us and we would see it. Open our hearts, Father, open our eyes. We thank you for Jesus for his life, and his death, and his resurrection. And we pray that as we think on the truths that you've revealed to us, that you would give us comfort and joy and hope. We ask these things now, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is our Savior and our Lord, and all God's people together said,